In order to retire successfully, you'll need vision. You'll also need a plan to execute that vision. Welcome to Retirement Pathfinder with Barbara Lane and Phil Gusky. On today's show, we'll give you the tools you need to navigate unique challenges you'll face in retirement. It's time to chart your financial future. Retirement Pathfinder starts now. It's another edition of the Retirement Pathfinder on the way. Walter Storholt alongside Phil Gusky and Barbara Lane, Retirement Income Planning Specialists at Pathfinder Wealth Management in Rockford. You can find us online by going to pathfinderwealth.com. Lots of great resources on the website. Pathfinderwealth.com, your place to go. Well, we've got a great podcast on the way today. It's the mailbag edition of the Retirement Pathfinder, where we answer your questions. And so we're excited to feature several questions on today's show, covering quite a variety of topics. So Barbara and Phil, put your thinking caps on. I've got some good questions to toss your way. Are you ready? We're ready. ready. All right. Excellent. First one comes to us from Angie. Angie says, I'm retiring at 60, but would like to delay the start of my Social Security until I'm at least 66. But is it unwise for me to live solely off my savings for that many years? I can take that one, Phil. Good question. When to take Social Security? Well, there's many things to consider because whether you start benefits in two years at age 62 or six years, it's a big deal and it's a final decision once it's made. So Angie, what I would recommend is having a retirement plan. Because there are so many considerations, it's not just about Social Security. So it depends on the amount of assets you have for retirement, and it may make the most sense for you to begin early. But if a plan looks like you're going to have plenty of money in retirement accounts, then you could possibly consider waiting. Are you married? And there's an option called a restricted application that's available to those age 66. If you're married, and let's say if your spouse was at least age 62 or more in 2015, then that spouse can collect a spousal benefit and yours can grow. So you've got various options here. Talk to a social security expert. We specialize in helping our clients decide on the best time. And you have to consider health and all available sources of income. So it's not just a one size fits all approach to social security. So you wanna consider first of all, your expenses in retirement, your retirement savings, your health and your spouse's health and whether you're married or single. So the right answer depends on many of those things. And I would work with someone who specializes in that area. What do you think, Phil? Well, you're right, Barb. In fact, you really are the on-site guru as far as Social Security. And you know how often I've deferred to you, even with my own personal <laughs> questions about my own mm -hmm. Social Security planning. And so uh, I don't have anything else, else to add to that other than, you know, you need to talk to somebody who really is very, very uh, informed in this area because you can make some mistakes that are really undoable. Right. I think that's the key, isn't it, Barbara, that Social Security is one of those things that's somewhat irreversible. I mean, once you pull the trigger on certain decisions regarding Social Security, you can't undo them like maybe a bad investment or you buy a stock or a mutual fund or something like that. You can undo that decision in a relatively short amount of time um, or long term. You, you can always change that standing that you're in compared to Social Security. Kind of once you make your bed, you're lying in it, right? Yeah, you know, you could, you have choices once you reach full retirement age for Social Security, but if you're going to collect prior to that, then there isn't anything that you can do to turn that off unless you pay the benefits back within a year. So it gets kind of sticky. You want that to be a good and final decision. Important to certainly know that. That's a very good question, Angie. Thank you for submitting that one to us. Again, if you want to submit a question to be featured on a future show, you can do that by going to Pathfinder Wealth. 
Com. Jay has a question. Jay says, I have an old life insurance policy that I probably don't need anymore. Is there any reason not to just take out the cash value and invest it somewhere else? Well, Walter, I'll take that particular question. You know, this is kind of near and dear to my heart because, you know, I've had an insurance license for many years and I'm often asked that question. But before I can give Jay a, a good answer, I need to ask him some other questions. And, you know, questions would be along the line is how old is he? How close is he to retirement? You know, what is his current income? Is he married? Does he have kids and what are their ages? Does he have debts? Does he carry a mortgage? Uh, how about school loans? Is he paying for those or car loans? And if he's married, does his wife contribute by way of income? So, you know, sometimes it makes sense to cash out these old policies, but sometimes it doesn't. There's no hard and fast rule. But Jay says something very interesting. He says he probably doesn't need it anymore. And I need to find out from Jay where he comes up with that term, probably. What, how did he come to that conclusion? I want to get more in depth with him about that. But, you know, when we talk about life insurance, you know, what is it really for? Well, what life insurance is really meant to do is create an immediate estate when you die because you don't have an estate established. And this would be primarily young people, young marrieds have, you know, they have obligations, they have mortgages, young kids, you know, and of course, if the breadwinner or breadwinners die, the uh, income is cut off and that would be devastating to the family. So that life insurance really creates an immediate estate. But, you know, as you go through life, you begin to accumulate assets. And so that's through the accumulation of 401ks and IRAs and pensions. So as time goes on, the need for life insurance begins to diminish because remember that life insurance is to create that immediate estate. But if you have the estate established already, you have less need for life insurance. And we call that the theory of decreasing responsibility, by the way. But, you know, you need to determine what your income will be from those particular sources. And so as you get closer to retirement, your need for life insurance begins to Diminished. So in our opinion, there clearly are more reasons to redeem the cash values from these older policies than they are to continue the life of these life insurance policies. So Barb, I have anything to add to that? You're right. I'd say, you know, it has to be typically it's a need for life insurance. But it's interesting that I, I met with one of my clients last week and he's had a life insurance policy on his wife and she's never worked. So clearly he didn't need that income. There's no income to replace should something happen to her. But after we met, he still wants to keep that policy because he just wants life insurance on her. So it's really to fill a need or want. If you don't have a need or want, then then don't keep it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, and one of the other things I wanted to mention too, as a side note, is that you know we often uh, talk to couples that where we have double income families. It's almost exceptional today that you see a one income family, just the spouse or you know the breadwinner, one person. And so keep this in mind that if you are both contributing to the income of that family, you should both have an equal amount of life insurance. Quite often we see maybe the husband has twice or three times as much life insurance and the wife has very little. And so we need to kind of adjust that inequity. So interesting to hear the different reasons why people have life insurance, why they don't need it anymore. And I just find it really cool that you zeroed in on that part of the question, Phil, with the word that really perked your ears up, sounded like it was probably and how you're able to dissect it from there. Sometimes it's the questions that we gloss over that really need the analysis. And that's probably the situation here with Jay is why probably, where did you get that from? Let's analyze that first before we dive into the rest of the question. So that's really good. 
Great question, Jay. Thanks for submitting that one. Again, submit your questions online. Pathfinderwealth.com. That's pathfinderwealth.com. Monica has a short and sweet question for us. I know that I have too much money just sitting in the bank, but I'm scared of a market crash. Not really a question, but you can probably pull a question out of that statement, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I can take that one. Sounds like she's a little bit scared. So how soon do you need the money that you have in the bank? I guess the question is, Monica, how much are you considering too much? So if it's near short term, say one to two years, then I would keep it in the bank. Remember, for an emergency fund, you should look at three to six months of income or expenses replacement. And the question I would have is, are you typically risk averse or is this just recent stock market volatility that has you spooked? Because what's most important here is what is the goal of this money? Is it short term need? Is it for retirement? And also remember that there are all types of risk besides stock market risk. Bonds have interest rate risk. They have inflation risk. CDs have inflation risk. There's no such thing as a risk-free investment. So if the money's for retirement, then the question is, how soon are you retiring? And how soon do you need to access it? So here's some thoughts. We teach retirement planning courses at our local college, and we have one coming up this month. So give our office a call at 815-399-9806. Because here's some of the things that we teach about. We talk about risk and investing. We talk about estate protection, legacy planning, retirement income. We teach on about six subjects, and this is a two-part course. And then you'll come away and you'll understand what all forms of risk there are with your money. And then you can make an educated decision on what's best for you. But with all that said, there are just some people that should not be in the stock market. But this is important to remember. People invest their money to stay ahead of inflation, rising future costs. So the stock market is typically up every three out of four years. And lastly, when we have a down year in the market, going back to 1926, the upside plus, the upside plus happens the very next year. So the market recovers the very next year following a down year or years. So to answer that question accurately, we depend on the goals for that money. What do you think, Phil? I would agree with that, Barb. In fact, you know, it's uh, you said something very key about these upcoming classes that we're conducting. You know, the byline in real estate is you know, three things that are very important with investing in real estate or, or buying a home or a, a place of business are location, location, location. Our byline is education, education, education. <laughs> and so after people go through a series of training or education, you know, their eyes are opened up to a lot of the opportunities, but at the same time, they may discover that they're not market people at all. They shouldn't really be in equities. They should be back in the bank. Got to know yourself, certainly. And I think part of that process is getting educated. And then you can kind of know your tendencies, your feelings on certain subjects and kind of be better in tune with your mind and with the decisions that you want to make. So really good question or, uh, you know, consideration there, Monica. A lot of people, I'm sure, are in your boat scared of a market crash and wondering what to do, whether it be too much money in the bank or maybe it's too much money in the market or some other combination. But it does have a lot of people, I think, looking inward at their finances. And that's not sometimes not a bad thing to look inward and think about your investments. I've got a great question from Millie here I want to make sure that we get to. So let's jump to Millie's question, Barbara and Phil. As I prepare for retirement, Millie says, I feel like I should learn from the best. How do guys like Warren Buffett consistently pick such good investments, and how can I apply such strategies? 
Well, I'll take that question, Walter. You know, that's an interesting one because, you know, if you look at the uh, returns for Berkshire Hathaway, which is the company that Buffett runs, you know, he's averaged 20% since 1965. That's phenomenal. You know, Warren Buffett is known as the Oracle of Omaha. And of course, he is a genuine guru. And there's very few people out there that can emulate what he does. He's talented. But, you know, he's not just talented at buying the right stocks. Most people don't know this, but he also purchases the right companies where his people go in and actually control the company. So he goes in and he takes over and manages the company. And what he's looking for are companies that are in distress. They're called value companies. They're selling below the market price of what's on their book. Now, the average person, uh, Walter, can't do that. They don't usually have the ability to go in and, and buy distressed companies. Yeah. But you as an investor, you can follow some of the same strategies that Buffett does employ. And that's focusing on the value sector of those groups of companies that are undervalued. They're actually selling below their book value. And so that, by the way, is a very profitable, productive area. Buffett identified it years ago. And the academics will tell you that the value area is really where your greatest returns come from. And by just concentrating on value, you have historically outperformed many of the other groups or asset classes. However, that being said, you need to seek the advice of someone who knows how to identify value opportunities. So, Barb, what do you have to say about that? Is value important to keep in the portfolio? Yeah, according to uh, Nobel Prize winning academics, it's small in value in both U.S. and international. That's where the additional premiums are. You just have to allocate it accordingly to risk. But I was just looking at, because Warren Buffett's the famous buy and hold guy, you know what one share of his stock is? Mm-mm. $294,000. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, yep. Good stuff. Can I buy a fraction of that? Like, you know, just, uh, you know, a <laughs> yeah. one thousandth of that or something like that? <laughs> well, you, you can actually buy his B shares, which were issued back uh, some years back that allowed people with, with smaller dollars to get into it. And I don't know what that's valued at. We don't recommend his, yeah. his stock. But yeah, it, it would be exceptional if you could uh, afford to purchase the, the Berkshire Hathaway original stock. That is pretty wild. That would be uh, one worth framing if you had, you know, the original certificate or something like that. Just just having it would be, uh, you know, value in and of itself, I'm sure, these days, yeah. let alone the market value of it, too. So good question, Millie. It's good to seek counsel, I suppose, from experts and those who do it well, but keep in perspective what they may have at their disposal that you don't, like a team to go and run all these different companies that you're investing in. A little bit different for maybe the everyday investor. So good to keep those things in mind. Lockhart has a question for us. Great name. I used to uh, work for uh, yeah. a boss whose name was Lockwood, but uh, a Lockhart here asking a question. If we enter into a long down period in the market, what will be the best approach for someone nearing retirement? I'm almost to that point and trying to figure out how to best position myself these final few working years. Hmm, I can take that one. Yeah, that Lockhart is a kind of a cool name. Good time to be looking at your retirement Lockhart because we do suggest to people that within five years at least of retiring, you take a look at where you're at. So this is a good time to plan. Well, if you have a retirement account at work, do not make any adjustments right now because you're likely down in value and the market will recover. When you're putting together a retirement plan, you're going to want to begin with your goals for retirement. So what do you envision your life to look like when you're in retirement? And some considerations are this. Start with your expenses. 
You know, what is your spending plan going to look like in retirement? You have to allow for inflation. You have to allow for taxes. Are you married? Do you choose to leave a legacy for your family, for instance? Aging issues for yourself and certainly for your spouse. Are your parents involved as far as having to take care of them? So stock market volatility is short term. So what you want to do is work with someone who's going to give you a plan for success in retirement, regardless of what happens short term in the stock market. So you yourself are the one that can help co-design a plan until it meets your goals and your needs. That's the real question. What does a long-term plan look like the next 10, 20, or even 30 years of your life? That's what you want to take a look at. Phil, what do you think? Well, you know, Barb, it is an interesting question. And we'll often ask clients at our classes, prospects, people that come in as students, uh, you know, why are you invested in the stock market? And the response is always, we want to make more money. But the real issue is make more, what kind of money? How much more money? More money than what? And so the real reason for investing is to outpace something called inflation. Inflation is really your biggest obstacle here as far as investing. So you need to earn and retain those returns north of that inflation rate percentage. That's another good question. And thank you for that one, Lockhart. One more time, if you want to submit a question, just go to pathfinderwealth.com. That's pathfinderwealth.com. One more here, Barbara and Phil. This one's from Gretchen to cap us off for the week. Gretchen says, I inherited a lot of stocks and mutual funds from a relative recently. A friend who trades stocks told me that I'd have to pay a ton of taxes because we don't know the beginning price for these investments. They're old and weren't tracked back then, I guess. So he said it would be all treated as gains, and I'm going to have a huge tax bill on my hands. Does that sound right? Well, Walter, I'll take that particular question, and the answer to Gretchen is no. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound right. And the key to that particular answer is the word used inherited. Inherited means anything that comes to you after someone has passed away, whether it's parents or a rich uncle or whatever, or a brother or sister. And there's special provisions in the tax code that says once you've inherited property through a death, that property receives something called a step up in basis or a new cost basis. The cost basis is the value of that item on the date of death. So what they do is they look at the date of death and the value of those particular assets, whether stocks, bonds, mutual funds, real estate, or anything else, a capital asset, they look at the value of the date on that date of death and they assign a brand new cost basis to that particular asset. And so the step up in basis is giving you a huge advantage and they literally forgive all the previous gains and they ignore those prior to the date of death, a huge advantage to the capital gains investor. You know, a lot of people make the mistake of not really understanding that they have an advantage called the step up in basis or the new cost basis. Now, one thing I will say, Walter, is that if the person died five or six years ago and you've, you've held that stock since that time and decided to sell it, there may be an increase in the stock and there could be a capital gains incursion since the date of death. So be aware of that. But no, there won't be a huge capital gain prior to the death of that particular individual and then having subsequently received it as an inheritance. Barb, what do you have to add to that? Well, you know, Walter, when uh, Gretchen called in, this is what's funny. This is what I captured is she says, a friend who trades stocks told me. Hmm. And we hear that often with people that come to our classes and our investors. My neighbor gets this. My coworker gets that. I have a relative and on my and on. My barber says. Yeah. That's a good one. My barber says. As an expert. <laughs> 
they look at these people as an expert when in fact in this case it's incorrect information so you have to be careful where you're getting your information from and generally these people aren't experts that's <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, the underlying lesson here. Also, it just seems like whenever there is some sort of inheritance situation or gifting, it just sort of changes all of the rules that you otherwise would subscribe to. There's just so many nuances that enter the equation then. Absolutely. In fact, you have to be careful of the gifting situation because if you do gift to a child and, of course, then you subsequently die after that, they don't receive the, the step up in basis. So they have foregone that huge tax advantage. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no readjustment of the cost basis through a gift. Well, if there is somebody who's listening to the show today and they have maybe a question further on what we've talked about, all these different topics we've touched on today, or maybe it's something that we haven't covered on today's show, what's the easiest way for them to kind of start that process of getting those questions answered? What's it look like to talk to the two of you and the team at Pathfinder Wealth and, you know, kind of walk down this path, for lack of a better term, to use your, you know, show name here, to walk down that path and start getting a more solid plan in place and to answer some of the questions that are on their mind. Yeah, all they have to do, Walter, is just call our office and our number is 815-399-9806 and ask for uh, an appointment. We do complimentary consultations or even Probably a better approach would be to come to one of our classes. They can register for our classes either online or through the office. And that starts the process going. If they really want to take an educational approach taught by fiduciaries who have their, their best interest in mind. Again, the ways to get in touch online, find out about upcoming events, and also contact the team and listen to the show, pathfinderwealth.com, or you can call 815-399-9806. That's 815-399-9806. Barbara and Phil, thank you so much for taking the time out to join us on today's show. We'll talk to you again next time. All right. Thanks, Walter. We appreciate it. For Phil and Barbara, I'm Walter. We'll talk to you next time on the Retirement Pathfinder Podcast. Information is for illustrative purposes only and does not constitute tax, investment, or legal advice. Always consult with a qualified investment, legal, or tax professional before taking any action.